All right, the series, Little Big Things. And what we've said from the start is that sometimes the things that we see as little are really very big in the sight of God. And then we said also that sometimes the things that we see as little or inconsequential, unless we embrace them, unless we get active in doing them, we never develop so that perhaps some things that we would even recognize as bigger, we are even capable of ever doing. Came across, someone sent me this week a really beautiful little clip of a little big thing happening in real life. So let me share that with you. Two second grade boys with a lesson for us all. Two boys on their first day of second grade at Minnehaha Elementary School in Wichita, Kansas. Christian Moore on the right and Connor Kreitz on the left. Just moments before this photo was taken, Christian reached out for Connor's hand. He sensed Connor was overwhelmed on the first day. It turns out eight-year-old Connor is autistic. He was nonverbal until he was five. And his mother told us late today what that other little boy, Christian, saw. Christian seen him curled up in a corner, and he was crying. So all Christian did was go over and grab his hand. That simple act lit up his day. He made him so happy. And that's all I can ask for, is for someone to be open to him like that. And the two mothers side by side, Christian, who reached out his hand, his mother proud of her son's lesson to us all. One act of kindness, you know, can change change someone's life. Can change the world. That's all it takes. Two boys beginning the second grade and beginning a new conversation about the power of something small, something kind. Yeah. It's little, you know, it was easy enough, but we all know it it was big. Uh, really, really big. Now, I don't know. I haven't lived a real, real long time, but I've lived long enough to develop a theory. I feel like uh, the world that we live in today is not quite as prone to be helpful, not quite as kind as what it was maybe even just, you know, 40 years ago, for example. Uh, but let me give you an example, a concrete example. Back when, when I was a teenager, the guys, guys that I ran around with, we, we didn't have cars. It took us a lot longer to get cars. We were not that wealthy and all like that. And so believe it or not, believe it or not, living in southeast Washington, we would hitchhike. In fact, I have friends that hitchhiked all over the country. Yeah, and, uh, and people would pick you. They would not only pick you up, they pick you up late at night, and they would pick us up sometimes, three of us together, Late at night, we had to hitchhike out to PG County because none of the girls in Southeast Washington would have anything to do with us anymore. <laughs> and I wish that weren't true, but it was. <laughs> and so, but they would pick us up hitchhiking, and and you know that that doesn't really happen. In fact, I I, I got a picture of myself 15 years old hitchhiking. Let me just I'll share it with you. Here you go. <laughs> It's amazing how old I looked back then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now today, if you want to get a lift, you have to do it like this, right? You might get to share the amount with somebody. You know, if you get two pastors together going to the same destination, you don't pay quite as much. But you're going to pay a little bit of something for a lift today. You can't do this and get picked up today for the most part. But, but I'm not kidding you. They would pick you up in those days, even late at night, when they shouldn't have picked us up. <laughs> so 
What I want to do is take you to a portion of scripture now that will show you where the original idea for a lift came from. So go ahead and turn, if you don't mind, to page, it will be page, where is the page? 1163. 1163, you'll be in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to see where the original idea for the organization or the business called Lift came from. And we'll start reading in verse 17. We'll go 17 through 26. This is now at the very early part of the, the second year of Jesus' ministry. It starts in verse 17 by saying, Now on one of those days while he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting nearby who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Just then some men showed up carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher, giving him a lift. <laughs> they were trying to bring him in and place him before Jesus. But since they found no way to carry him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down on the stretcher through the roof tiles right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are, what is the word? Forgiven. Forgiven. Then the experts in the law and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who is uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but, you tell me, God. God alone. God alone. They were right. When Jesus perceived their hostile thoughts, he said to them, why are you raising objections within yourselves? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk, but so that you may know that the who? Keep that in mind. We'll kind of backtrack on that a bit. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, stand up, take up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately, he stood up before them, picked up the stretcher he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. Then astonishment seized them all, and they glorified God. They were filled with awe, saying, we have seen incredible things today. So it's a kind of a simple story, but there's a lot going on here. There's a lot. And I hope to unpack it sufficiently for you. But what we see is some friends giving a little bit of transportation to a friend, a lift, a little bit of a a lift toward Jesus, helping someone move toward Jesus, but it results in receiving, the man receives a, a huge, a large transformation. He goes from being paralyzed to being able to function, to care for himself. And when you think about paralysis, paralysis is somebody who has a desire to do things, a desire to function normally, a desire to function in a healthy fashion, a desire to carry out things in their life for themselves and maybe for others, but they can't follow through on it. They don't have the power. Think about what I just said. They have the desire to do things for themselves, to be responsible. They even have the desire to maybe do things for others. They have the desire to do maybe the right thing, the good thing, but, but they just don't have the power they don't have the power to do that and I can't help but wondering if that doesn't feel like some of you today that you you have the desire 
to be responsible. You have the desire to do what is right and good. You have the desire even to help others and to help yourself, but you just you can't seem to find the power. We'll, we'll address that as we go on. So the man's situation goes from paralysis to fully functional. And I can tell you one person that was the happiest person in the whole place about this guy's healing, the homeowner. So he could get up on that roof and fix that hole. <laughs> I mean, they broke a hole in the guy's roof to let this guy down because the crowds were so large around Jesus. And this man's life is restored. He's transformed by his encounter, his personal encounter with Christ. Now, Jesus said something that we might miss because it kind of happens fast. It says, Jesus, when the hole was cut in the roof and they're lowering this man down the stretcher, it says, Jesus saw their, what's the word? Faith or trust. It's the same Greek word, pistis. It means faith, trust, reliance, confidence. He saw their, who? The guys carrying, I'm picturing four guys carrying this thing. And then the man on the stretcher himself, the paralyzed man, we have to understand, he evidently already trusted in Jesus. His friends trusted in Jesus. They had probably been hearing about this new teacher, this new rabbi, who was nothing like the other religious leaders. He had this ability to heal people of things that nobody else healed. And more than that, he loved people. He loved all kinds of people. He never gave a word of condemnation to anybody. He treated people with dignity and respect. He welcomed them warmly. That was not true of the other religious leaders. Maybe you're wondering, why would Jesus blurt out to this guy, son, or friend, actually, he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Why would he say to the paralyzed man, first he, come, come, he commends them for their faith, but then he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. It seems kind of odd. Why would he just blurt that out? The man hadn't said anything. He hadn't asked for forgiveness as far as we know. Why would he do this? And why would he do this with full knowledge that the Pharisees and the religious experts from all over the area were there. Now, Jesus was not foolish. He knew why they were there. When John the Baptist started out his ministry announcing that he was the forerunner for the Messiah who they had been waiting for, he confronted these same religious leaders as John the Baptist was baptizing people to prepare their hearts to receive the Messiah, to turn to the Messiah in a baptism of repentance, the religious leaders came and he called them a bunch of snakes. He says, you bunch of snakes, do you think you can just kind of come here and dip yourself in water and everything's going to be cool? No, you need to change your life. And he confronted them. But he called them snakes. Jesus, his first real confrontation came when he went into the temple. How many remember the story? He went into the temple and he saw they were selling things in a way that was not appropriate. They were handling money in the temple, and Jesus drives them out of the temple, and the religious leaders confront him and say, who do you think you are? Where do you get the authority to do this? And so the confrontation had kind of started, but now Jesus does what he knows will certainly set their fuse. And let me just tell you, this is the first big conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders of that day, and this started a fight that would go on for three years. It was relentless on their side. They would not give up until they had Jesus where they wanted him. And where they wanted him was on a cross. There are still people today that don't want God to exist. There are still people today that want God to be 
dead, that want him crucified, that want his existence to be nullified. It was true then. It was true now. And some people that are extraordinary religious from the outside still don't really like God. And that was the case of these individuals. So Jesus' pronouncement, son, your sins are forgiven, or friend, your sins are forgiven, it was not arbitrary. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that a confrontation with these religious leaders had to be started because they had been influencing the people, giving the people a false depiction of God. They depicted God as being disappointed pretty much with everybody except themselves and angry at most let me go further this man's condition paralysis the way the religious leaders of jesus day the way they taught about someone like this man is that the reason that he was paralyzed the reason that he was in this terrible condition is because either his family before him had committed some heinous sin or he himself had committed sin You might recall the same thing happened when the disciples, Jesus' own disciples, asked Jesus about a blind man. He said, "Uh, Lord, has this man sinned to be blind or have his family members sinned? And Jesus says, none of them have sinned for this guy to be blind, but he's blind so that the works of God can be revealed in him. You might recall Jesus talking to a crowd of people about a tower in Luke 13 that fell on some people and killed them. And he said, do you suppose they were greater sinners and that's why the tower fell? And Jesus said to all of them around his disciples included he said no they were not and unless you too repent he said worst thing will happen to you so the Jews of Jesus day and there was no excuse for this folks the Jews of Jesus day the religious leaders they still held to an idea about God that we find first depicted 1900 years earlier before the scriptures were even starting to be recorded 1900 years earlier we read a book in the Bible the Old Testament book and it looks like the word job you need a job go to the book of Job but it's, it's pronounced Job how many have ever read the book of Job at least the first two chapters Well, the first two chapters are catastrophic. The most righteous man on the planet is blasted by Satan. His family is killed, his business is destroyed, and his health is destroyed. What happens in the rest of the book of Job for another 30-some-odd chapters is Job's friends that come to comfort him, all they do is relentlessly accuse him. Job, you know you've got hidden sin. We know you're a phony man. We know you're fake. None of this stuff would happen to somebody that were just. God would be treating you differently if you were a good guy. You're not a good guy, Job. Own your sin. Confess your sin because it's obvious to everybody God is punishing you. And here are these religious leaders in Jesus' day, 1,900 years later, And after God's multiple interactions with them for some 1,450 years with recording of it, they should have known better. God had made it very clear that he was not that kind of a God. And here they were perpetrating this false image of God, destroying the souls of other people, making other normal, needy people think that God would, would never have anything to do with them, that they were hopelessly abandoned by God, that he was disgusted with them and so here this paralyzed guy probably desperately needed to hear these words he probably believed a little bit what these religious leaders taught after all they were the religious leaders he probably believed that God was disgusted with him and that's why he was paralyzed that he was being punished for his sins and Jesus wants this guy to know that's 
not true in any way, shape, or form. And he wanted everybody listening to know that's not what God is like. He doesn't react that way. He doesn't treat us that way. In fact, Jesus says that he causes his son to rise on the good and the evil. He blesses the evil too. In this life, the evil, you know it, I know it, Jesus knew it, get away with an awful lot of things. God is not punishing immediately all offenses and all evil in this age. He's giving space to people to express their repentance and their willingness to return to their God. And he's giving people space to express their devotion to that. That which is destructive and evil. He's not intervening. He's not judging now. So all these things were going on. Jesus needed this confrontation. He needed to save the people of his day from being deceived about the way God really feels about people. And probably this poor man who felt condemned of God as the reason for his paralysis, he really needed to hear it. Now Jesus says something to these guys. He says, which is easier? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven because they have been whispering amongst themselves, only God can forgive sins, which is true. Or to say to the paralyzed man, rise, take up your mat and walk. Something that they were powerless to do. They could condemn, but they couldn't help or heal anybody. Jesus could heal and help, and he did not condemn and so Jesus says to them, so that you may know the Son of Man. Now, now, the Son of Man, it kind of flies over our head when we read it. But Son of Man was a big red flag to those religious leaders. The Son of Man comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. It is a depiction of the Messiah. All the Jews recognized it as a messianic portion of Scripture. It's describing the Messiah as taking over the rule and reign of the whole world and ruling and reigning and establishing his kingdom forever. And Jesus is using a technique with them that rabbis or teachers in that day often used. It was something called remez. Sometimes we read Scripture and we, we find that they quote a part of a verse in Scripture. Sometimes the apostles do it. And we, we're like, where is the connection there? Well, remez was the technique they were using. Remez was based on this. The people of that day, believe it or not, folks, believe it or not, most of the people, average Jews, they had a lot of the Old Testament memorized. And some of them had the entire Old Testament memorized. They didn't have anything else to do, man. They didn't have any TV. They, they didn't have Netflix. <laughs> they didn't have any books for the most part. And this is, this is true, though. So the people of that day, they were saturated with Scripture. And so what these teachers, these rabbis would do is they would say a portion of a Scripture, maybe two or three words of it, and then they connect it to maybe another two or three words, but they sometimes would just give a word. They knew the people would connect it back to the original passages where it came from, and the people would find the secret meaning. Jesus is saying to these guys, son of man, he's saying, not only am I here forgiving sins, and you're right, only God can, but I am the Messiah, the one that you have been waiting for. What you didn't connect was that the Messiah is none other than the creator himself. You talk about undercover boss. This was the, <laughs> this was the ultimate undercover boss. Picture this. These guys are so religious. They're more religious than God. <laughs> they're so religious that when God himself shows up on the planet, they can't stand him. They hate him. This was the start of a relentless battle for three years that they finally won, so they thought, 
by getting Jesus crucified ultimately. So so all this is going on in this passage. And, of course, the wonderful thing, the the message for us is we see these four buddies. I depict it as four. Stretchers are hard to carry for any distance. I can't picture just one guy on each end. These four buddies, five friends all together, the four buddies, though, just helping to give a friend a lift toward Jesus. And when this man connects with Jesus and all the barriers removed, all the fear that he might have had, all the guilt resolved, all the certainty that God really is the way Jesus depicts him as kind and loving and good. That he looks at us as a great physician. He doesn't look at us with the eyes of a judge. All this must have erupted in this man with such tremendous relief and joy. But then Jesus puts the icing on the cake. He restores this man's health. It's a picture of what the kingdom of God will bring to all the world and the universe when the power of God is released in its fullness. Right now, God is not releasing his power in fullness to either extinguish evil or promote good. He's allowing both good and evil to express itself. But Jesus' miracles were a depiction, kind of a sample, if you would, of what life will be like when the full rule of God in full power covers the universe. There will be no sickness. There will be no paralysis. There will be no hatred. There will be no prejudice. And on and on we could go. So you got all that packed, all that packed in this passage. So... Let's apply it a little bit for ourselves. We see these guys giving just a little transportation. I mean, that's it. All they did was carry their buddy. They just gave a little bit of a help to a friend. It made me, of course, first of all, go to our transportation ministry that we we started in here some years back. Um, Many of you don't know the people behind the scenes, but um, there's a lady named Katrina Schaefer who has been organizing the transportation ministry in this church for a long, long time. One of the most important people is, is hidden again is a guy named Scott Eisenagel who keeps these vehicles running. And that alone is a relentless activity because um, our vehicles are not all in the greatest of condition. We have other people, Christine Gilbert, that's involved in it, Janet Craig's involved in it, and lots and lots of other drivers. So it's our little tiny way to try to help transport people so they can be just a little bit more likely to encounter Christ in a life-giving, life-transforming way. Look at a couple of scriptures from the New Testament, the book of Titus. Paul writing to Titus, he said, he, meaning Jesus, he gave his life to free us, to free us from what? Every kind of Sin. sin. Folks, this is not talking about the penalty of sin. It's talking about sin itself. My curse is sin. Your curse is sin. I need Jesus to so reveal the truth and the goodness of God to me that I trust in him so implicitly that the power of sin is broken in me and I literally stop sinning, which means I stop destroying myself because sin is living counter to the way our creator designed us. God is not a a spoil sport of our joy. Rather, he wants our fullness of life. He came or he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin to cleanse us and to make us his very own people. What kind of people? Totally committed to what? Doing good deeds, deeds, helping a friend, Just, just a little help to a friend. Now, because we are so prone to think that, oh, yeah, that's how God 
you know, rates us. We always think about God judging us, and I'm not sure why that's embedded in our minds, but it is. It's not about God weighing my good deeds, and they, if they outweigh my bad deeds, he says, yes, you can pass through the pearly gates. We've talked about it before. That's not it. And just to assure you of that, look what's said in the third chapter of this very same little book of Titus. It says, he saved us. It's talking about Jesus again. He saved us not because of the what? Righteous things we had done, but because of what? His mercy. So it's not about doing good deeds so that I can merit God's favor. No, no, no. It's that, that God wants people that are like himself, people that just love good, that just, just look for every opportunity to bless and to help and to, to comfort and to build up another person where love just rules in each and every heart. That's the kind of people that he, that he wants. And Jesus' sacrifice was to so influence us that we'd be motivated to be that kind of people that were always looking for an opportunity to do good deeds, to give a friend a lift, a lift toward Jesus. There's a lot of ways that we can give somebody a lift toward Jesus that are not physiological. They're not concrete like just giving somebody a ride, right? Sometimes we can give somebody a lift to move them closer to Jesus by a little encouraging note or an encouraging word or by sharing a scripture or by praying for them and any number of other things. I'm just curious, how many of you have ever been in a place where you just kind of were struggling and somebody, another fellow follower of Christ, said something, did something, and it just sort of reestablished your equilibrium. It sort of put some, some energy back in your tank. It sort of encouraged you and strengthened you. How many have ever had something like that occur? Yeah, see, it's all over. That's the way it's supposed to work. We're, we're the body of Jesus, and we are meant to build one another up in his love. And, and so we can all help give each other a lift toward Jesus. And we all need a lift toward Jesus at times. We all still get paralyzed. When I was talking earlier about some of us that have the desire to do what is right and good, the desire to be responsible, the desire even to be generous and serve others, but we don't have the power. We want to do what's good and right, but we find that we lack the power. Well, that, that usually means that we, we need a greater uh, revelation of who Christ is. We, we need a greater understanding of the depths of his goodness and his love. We need to understand that he's the safest person in the universe. And we need closeness to him. And closeness to him will elevate our understanding of him. And understanding of him will elevate our admiration for him. And admiration, when it's elevated, will elevate our affection for him. Follow what I'm saying here now. Because that's the secret of energy, folks. That's the secret of gaining that power to do the good that we want to do instead of being paralyzed and stuck and not being able to do the good that we want to do. Here's another verse from the book of Hebrews. It's just kind of emphasizing the same thing. It says, do not forget to do good and to do what? Help one another. These guys were just helping a buddy. It was little, but it was big. It was a little transportation, but it brought a big transformation in the life of this man. Don't forget, because we can easily forget. We can think it's small. It's not small. Do not forget to do good and to help one another because these are the sacrifices that please God. Now, don't misunderstand what that verse is saying. Don't think like doing good to somebody or helping somebody is a sacrifice. The context in the book of Hebrews is this. The Old 
temple was still standing. Animal sacrifices were still being offered at that temple. For another three to four years, that temple would still be standing. And so the writer of Hebrews is comparing those sacrifices that had no meaning after the death of Jesus with the real sacrifices, the real things that please God. He's not pleased with the blood sacrifices of animals. He's interested in the loving, kind deeds that flow from hearts that have been affected by the love of Christ. So giving a little transportation, just a thought, you know, here's a thought next week is, uh, you know, Rediscover Sunday, and, and, and might it be something to consider? You pray about it, think about it. Might it be that the person you invite, you even offer, say, hey, why don't you ride with me? Why don't your family ride with our family? I don't know. Maybe it's a bad idea. Um, <laughs> maybe you're grumpy when you drive to the church. I don't know. <laughs> maybe you speed. <laughs> I, I, confession. I was running late this morning, man. You, you guys know it. I got in here a little, little later than I used to do. I, I was speeding down here. <laughs> Road was kind of empty, but I was I still I was speeding. <laughs> so giving a little transportation. Now, they gave a little transportation to a friend. They just helped to get him to Jesus, but it brought a large, a huge transformation. This man that was once paralyzed and unable to be who God meant him to be and unable to do what God meant him to do suddenly was infused with the power to be and to do all that God intended. That's a big transformation. This miracle, this miracle is really a, a sort of a spiritual parable parable for us about how we develop. In other words, Jesus didn't, didn't heal everybody who was paralyzed then or now. We know that. It's a picture of the kingdom of God in its fullness, but it's also a spiritual parable of, of growth and development and, and how power gets infused in us. It's how we ourselves can be transformed. This episode brought a tremendous revelation of Christ. All of a sudden, people who didn't know who Jesus was, they hear him say, your sins are forgiven, friend, and they know only God can forgive sins. And when he's challenged about it, when the, the religious leaders kind of corner him so they think, he then causes this paralyzed man to be restored completely. So the individuals that were there, they all got this expanded revelation of God. They saw that God is in Jesus, and Jesus is like God, and, and that God was nothing like the way that the religious leaders had depicted him. He was not disappointed with normal people, fallen, broken people. He was not angry at normal, fallen people. No, in fact, he wanted to heal and restore and help ordinary, broken people, and that broken people had nothing to fear from God, and all that was revealed in Jesus. All through his ministry, he loved ordinary, broken, yes, sinful people. Now, don't get me wrong on this. He didn't love us to continue in sin. He couldn't because he knows that it's sin that is destroying us, but he loves us to the point that we can trust in him, find safety in him so that we are willing to listen and to do his will, and that's what brings the healing into our souls that God wants us to bring. Look at this verse that talks about how we are transformed as we contemplate the true image of God in Jesus. It says, and we all who with unveiled faces 
contemplate. To contemplate something is you're focusing on it. You're thinking about it. You're looking at it from different angles. We who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, that's the glory of Jesus, God's glory in Jesus, what happens to us as we contemplate, as we focus on, as we meditate on the character and the beauty of Christ? We are being what? Transformed. Transformed into what? His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This miracle brought a great revelation of the truth about God in Jesus and as people understand it and as people think about it and as people start to then admire this God and then start to have affection for this God, that creates energy and motivation to embrace this God's will and to start working it out in our life, putting off our old ways, putting on these new ways, and it results in us increasingly becoming like Christ, transformed. you got to get this transformed by contemplating the image of God. It's, it's the beauty. It's the purity. It's the sacrificial love of God that once we really internalize it, fixate on it, dwell upon it, it starts to, once again, increase our understanding of God. He's the safest person in the universe. And instead of withdrawing from him and trying to block him out of our mind, we want to keep our mind on him because we know that nobody nobody's in our corner like him and once we start understanding him we start to admire him and once we start to admire him we start to have affection for him and that's where we start to gain mobilization we start becoming motivated we're energized we want to be like him so all this was happening in this portion of Scripture. This man's physical transformation is a parable of spiritual transformation that happens to us as we contemplate or see the Lord's glory revealed in a way that it's clear and understandable for us. You have the same principle reiterated in the book of Ephesians. Paul writing to Christ followers in Ephesus, he says, this work, this work of growing, this work must continue until we're all joined together in what we believe and in what we know about the Son of God. Our goal is to become like a what? Full-grown full man or full-grown human being. But what does a full-grown or mature human being look like? How do we measure that? Well, it tells us a full-grown man or full-grown human being looks just like who? Christ. Christ. And have all what? His all his perfection. But practicing the truth in love, we will. This is a positive statement. We absolutely will. If we practice God's truth in love, we will, in all things, grow up into who? Christ. Christ. Now, I say this a lot in here because I say I, I do it because I know that there's so much counter-teaching about us today. The, the teaching that's so prominent today, and it's even in Christian books, is this notion that, oh, yeah, it's wonderful to be forgiven by God. Isn't it great to just be forgiven by God and on our way to heaven? We're never going to be perfect in this life. We're going to just carry our old sinful nature with us all through this life. But, you know, maybe we can, we can do a little something. That's a lie. That's just a lie. That, that's not scriptural. The scripture holds before we broken human beings, we sinful human beings, we confused human beings. It holds before us the wonderful potential in this life to continue to grow and develop and actually, actually 
become just like Jesus. And that's what a real disciple is. A real disciple is not fixated on going to heaven. A real disciple is fixated on becoming like their Lord, the one they're following. You have to, and I have to start saying the right things to ourselves. I can grow. I can change. I can develop. I can become like Jesus. And we have to start pursuing it. A goal that's not pursued is not a realistic goal. But when we pursue it, we will find that we make progress and sometimes more progress than we ever thought possible. And there's something terribly wrong, folks, if we call ourselves Christian, Christ one, one with Christ, and we are not seeing concrete transformation in our character that's making us more like Christ. Truly our own unique self, but a Christ-like version. So I'm not talking about spiritual perfection, and I'm not talking about getting down on yourself if you're failing, because a lot of time the pathway to success as a Christian is failure. We're like stumbling our way. We're, we're like a little baby trying to learn to walk. We're down more than we're up for a while, but then we finally get our legs under us, and we grow, and we grow, but we've got to have the frame of mind. We've got to stop saying, oh, we'll never be perfect. We're all just going to be just forgiven sinners. That's all we are, you know. Well, you can do that if you want, but it's not scriptural. Man, you can be like Jesus. You really can. We can grow. We can change. And the way that it happens is as we get an expanded picture of what Jesus is really like, what God is really like in Jesus. That's what transforms us. That's what creates that cycle that I mentioned earlier inside of us. I'm going to close out with just a few conclusions. Number one, something as little as helping a friend can bring. Revelation of Christ's compassion and Christ's competence. They helped a friend they transported a friend to get to Jesus, and what occurred was they saw this, this tremendous revelation of Jesus' power, his competence, his ability to take any broken life and put it back together. They received a tremendous revelation of Jesus' compassion. Jesus is ever the one welcoming people. He's the good physician. You go to your doctor, your doctor doesn't condemn you for abusing your body, does he or she? Wouldn't it be a bummer? You go in there to your doctor... Your doctor says, and you want me to treat you. Here, you, you've been smoking like a chimney all your life, drinking like a fish, eating like a garbage disposal, and now you want me to fix you. I'm going to condemn you. You deserve whatever disease you get. Doctors don't do that. It doesn't matter how we've abused our body, right? We go in there in the worst possible condition, and we know they're going to accept us, care for us, try to restore us if they can. That's the image of God. He's the great physician. He's not the angry, disappointed judge the way the Pharisees treated, treated others and depicted him. Secondly, transformation for a friend. Something as little as helping a friend can bring transformation for a friend. I know some of you know stories. You did something as small as share a little bit with a friend about what was going on in your life spiritually. You just told them about how, hey, I've been doing this new thing, and I'm really starting to read the Bible, and I'm going to this church, and, and I'm starting to really try to understand Jesus. And you just kind of shared what was going on in your life, and then that friend got interested, and now years have come and years have gone, and that friend's entire life and family has been utterly transformed because you just gave a little bit of help. Or maybe you invited somebody to church and it transformed their life. So it can bring transformation for a friend. And then finally, it can do this. 
inspiration for others. It says in that, power, or in that passage we read, it says that, that everybody that day said, we've seen extraordinary things. And it says they went away glorifying God. It inspires others. Listen, when we help a friend, do something as little as help a friend, it not only opens the door for us receiving a greater understanding and revelation of the heart of God in Christ. It doesn't open the way uh, just for that friend being transformed, but it opens the door that multitudes of others will be inspired, just like we were all inspired by that story about that little boy at the very beginning of the talk today. Every one of us in here just felt something wonderful. It was beautiful what that little boy did. When you and I do something small, like just maybe helping a friend move toward Christ, it can, it can just spread and spread and spread and inspire others to do yet the same thing over and over again. It's just little stuff. Most of the really important stuff in life is little stuff, and most of the stuff we think is big, we're going to find out, hopefully not too late, it's usually pretty little. It's the things that we can do that we think are inconsequential, that we must learn to do because they're the big things, but they look little. So in closing, I wonder, might some of you know someone? You have a friend, you have a family member, they are open to God, but something's paralyzed them. Something has kept them from moving toward God. They're not closed exactly, but maybe they've had a paralyzing experience. Maybe their own guilt, maybe their own fear of God. Maybe they have a distorted image of God, and they think he's angry at them, and that paralyzes them. Maybe they think that they've done something that makes them unforgivable. You know, maybe there's something, and you just need to help. You need to give them a lift what that lift might be, you'll have to pray and get some wisdom from God. It could be so many number of things. But I just wonder if maybe some of us, we, we've got a friend that needs a lift, that just needs a little help moving toward God. And we know who it is. And now the Spirit of God is saying, just do the little thing. Will you just do the little thing and help this person start to move toward Christ? Maybe, maybe it's as concrete as what I said earlier in the message. Maybe... Maybe you literally need to offer a lift to somebody, to church. I'm being sincere. Maybe there's somebody in your circle of influence that if you were to say, hey, you know what, I know I've asked you to come to church before, but can, can I just ask you to ride with me? Will you just one Sunday ride with me? Heck, I'll buy you lunch after church or whatever, but can I just give you a lift to church? Maybe that concrete act is exactly what the Spirit of God would ask some of us to do this day. Will you do something little to give a friend a lift toward Christ? Let's pray. Father, first and foremost, we thank you for those who have, in some cases, many times over, given us a lift and moved us toward Christ, maybe for the first time or maybe after we've known him time and time again. Thank you for those that encourage and lift us. Give, us. give us wisdom today to hear what it is you're urging us to do. Help us to see the significance of doing some little thing to help someone else move toward Christ, their creator. We ask this in his name. Amen.